0: When my parents were young adults in order to get a mortgage on your home you had to supply the bank with a reference from, get this, the pastor of your church. Which made total sense to everyone then because a banker of the 1940s knew everybody goes to church and the pastor knows his people. Well, by the time I was a young adult that was no longer the case. But the church still held respect. In Gallup polls then, 68% of American adults said they had a great deal of confidence in church or organized religion. Today, the percentage of adults saying that has gone from 68% to 31%. Now, we might comfort ourselves by saying, well, hey, that's better than the level of confidence in the Supreme Court, the presidency, or Congress. <laughs> Congress is down at 7%, but that is, that is cold comfort. The fact is that people have been turned off by the Roman Catholic priest scandals, by the Willow Creeks and the uh, Mars Hills, and for many, the church is seen as uh, anti-women, anti-science, hateful toward gay people, resistant to racial justice. My, my friend uh, Drew Dick uh, did a book in which he did research among younger Christians who had left or were thinking about leaving the faith. And he, he told me, he says, quote, a lot of them were disgusted by the entanglement of politics with faith. And it was sad to see how many had battles with their parents over politics, and ended up leaving the faith because of it. Well, friends, this is our world. This is our moment. Tonight, you and I are here in a church. (laughs) So, not to be too obvious, but we all have two options. We can leave, as many uh, Americans are doing, or we can stay and do our part to create a healthy church what Tim Keller called, in his great phrase, a counterculture for the common good. Now, for those of you who are here, and but maybe seriously considering leaving the church, I can offer empathy. I've suffered under church leaders behaving badly, and one time I nearly jumped ship myself. But I have chosen to stay, and I'm very glad I did. So, I'm afraid I'm not the right person to offer you a lot more than that. In fact, I I, I do recognize sometimes people need space to heal. Sometimes they need to find a new place to heal. But long-term, in my own observation, I have not seen people who leave the church end up following Jesus better. It's stubbornly true that to follow Jesus well, you need a community of Christians gathered around Word, and table. Well, all right. So tonight what I want to do is speak to those of you who are choosing to stay and therefore have the commitment to make the church better. Uh, and perhaps those of you who may be closer to leaving will still find in this a way forward for you as well. So I've wrestled with that this week and using scriptures, especially from Acts, I want to offer two words of pastoral counsel. The first is, Get the complete picture of church, the whole big circle of church, the big complete picture. We all need it, whether we're a church loyalist or a church near-leaver. And part of that complete picture of church is what the church can be at its best. Can we open our eyes wide and really take in this description of the early church from Acts 2 tonight? It was the first reading. That's crazy. They're going out on Redfin and eBay and selling stuff so they have money to help other poor Christians. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, Wow. This is really amazing, amazing. These Christians, instead of thinking prayer meetings are boring, they're devoted to prayer. <laughs> That's what they do. There's awe. There's miracles. And one of the biggest miracles, really, is how radically they will share what their stuff. If you need it, it's yours. Um, they're enjoying meals together. And it's so amazing that people who are not a part of this community are looking at it and going, I don't have anything like that in my life. And I never will. How do I get in? When Karen was ordained here at Savior, uh, a couple of our friends came for the service and church was not a part of their life. If they'd been in church, it was maybe for one wedding or funeral or something. And after meeting many of you that weekend they were they were getting ready to leave and they commented to us you have so many nice friends. How do you know that many nice people? I was like, well, Jesus makes them that way. Like <laughs> like and I honestly, I've been in church so long that I sometimes forget that kindness is not what most people experience in their homes, in their workplaces, in their HOAs or anything else. Most people, their daily life is with people who have a lot of ego. There's a lot of backbiting. There's a lot of fudging the truth. There's a lot of positioning and angling. And so they've learned to keep their guard up. And all of a sudden, they walked in here for a weekend and they were like, I don't think I have to do that here. Friends, this is the church's potential. And may that only increase. When you or I have been hurt by a church or the church, we begin to lose our capacity to appreciate what is good and what can be so very good. The generosity, the community, even miracles, they happened and they still do. This is the church's potential. So that's part of the picture but it's not the whole picture. That's why I included uh, chapter 6, verse 1 in the reading. (laughs) Just uh, flip over a few pages in the Bible, and after, remember, we just read, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had, and now Acts 6, verse 1, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying, our widows are being discriminated in the daily food lines. So there's not this generous sharing like we just read about, or at least it's being impaired in this case, and it's being because of cultural differences. Or flip over a little further in the Bible. Remember how those early Christians were devoted to fellowship? And now the writer of Hebrews has to say, let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. So apparently there's been a cooling down and some people not not coming. Or keep going toward the back of your Bible. And in the little letter called Third John, we find that in the church there are leaders who are control freaks, or even more to the point, they are what we would call it would be they have abuse of power. John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I'll call attention to what he's doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us, and not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Now, I could go on with many, many more examples but the Bible gives us and wants us to see the complete picture of the church. It gives us the picture of the church's radiant potential, and it is also utterly honest about the church's real problems. It shows us that there is unity and there is division. There's amazing life, and there's some awful leaders. Both are true. So I wonder which part of that picture you most need right now? The potential or the problems? And I I really, as a sincere question, because they each help us in their own way. For example, if you are feeling wounded or cynical about the church, you will begin to heal more and more as you realize the church can be good again. There is good. There are good people. There are good practices. There's helpful things. And you need to know that there's beauty. Uh, And a lot of those things, honestly, happen in out-of-the-way places, not usually the places that are hugely connected to media and government. And they usually don't get a lot of press. Gallup Research reports that it is regular churchgoers, that regular churchgoers not only donate time and money to Charitable religious organizations, which of course include many wonderful things, like in our area, world relief, helping refugees and immigrants, for example. But they also donate time and money to non-religious organizations at the same rate that non-religious people do. Did you get that? It is Christians who double give. They not only give to the religious organizations, they give to the non-religious. It is Christians who disproportionately are giving to, say, let's just pick, the Red Cross, St. Jude Cancer Research Hospital, the food pantries, and all the organizations that are stitching together and trying to hold together the communities and the country we live in. On the other hand, sometimes we need a clear-eyed view of the church's problems. Sometimes Karen and I are helping a younger person who wants to lead in the church. And they're naturally excited, right? And they know when when I get a chance to lead, things are gonna go amazing. (laughs) And so we kind of run this little checklist. Do they have the mind of a scholar? Check. Do they have the heart of a child? Check. Do they have the hide of a rhinoceros? (laughs) And usually it's the third one that they don't yet have. And we don't want them to become overwhelmed or cynical when they will experience conflict and criticisms. Because those will come. They come in every leadership position, but they also come within the leadership positions in the church. And so they need that picture. They need to be reminded. Uh, Just because they walked in the door does not mean they stopped being human. Right? So that's number one. Get the complete picture of the church. Once we have that, we're able to do number two. Take positive action. Take positive action. An analogy may help here. I'm a citizen of America, and there are so many things I love about my country. Like, I love the fact that in my country, my wife was able to get a graduate degree My daughter was able to get a graduate degree. There's education and opportunities for women that could never have happened in a million years in, say, Iran. I love that about my country. And there are also things that drive me nuts about my country. Like the fact that as of this Wednesday, there have been 116 days this year and in those 116 days, there have been 172 mass shootings. More mass shootings than days. And nothing changes. Now, suppose I came to you as a friend and I said, man, I don't know what to do. It's driving me nuts. How can I stay and live in America where it is so violent? There's no other country in the world that has this. Well, you would probably tell me, well, don't flee to Canada. I hope you would tell me that, okay? (laughs) But you would also say, would you not? Well, if that's important to you, then take positive action. Donate and vote and advocate for common sense safety, right? Take positive action. Now, we are in the church What positive action can we take? How do we make it better? Well, I suppose there are many. God will creatively guide each of us. But I am struck, as I was reading Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation this week, that what Jesus is constantly trying to call his followers back from or protect them from are what I call the killer bees. Bad leaders, Bad teachings and blaseness, if that's not a word, becoming blasé. Okay. Jesus himself did all those things during his life. He stood up to bad leaders. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Some of our church leaders need that sermon. And he told us to be on our guard against false leaders, bad leaders. He said, watch out for false prophets. They come wearing sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Now, today's churches sometimes go wrong because they go looking for a pastor, and here's what they look for. Charisma, strong personality, and really amazing communication gifts. That's that's what we want, right? So often, though, too often, it's a sheep's costume. And what churches really need to look for is what's going on underneath in this life. How do they treat the staff at their last church? How do they treat their family? What's going on with their money? That's what you look at. The church gets better, friends, when all Christians check out leaders and hold them, not to impossible standards, but to the, risen, the ones that Jesus would look for. The risen Jesus actually commends a church for doing this. He says, you've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. And he's complimenting them for doing that. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again, but if Karen and I start to go bad, Call the bishop. This church needs someone to act in that moment. Okay. Well, Jesus not only stood up to bad leaders, he stood up to bad teaching. He said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The risen Jesus calls out churches that tolerate bad teachings. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching, what does she do? She misleads my servants with sexual immorality. And here's the word to another church. I have a few things against you. You have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I did some research on that this week. Scholars aren't 100% sure what that heresy was. But it may have involved wife swapping. Or, and or, the teaching that if you commit sexual immorality, after seven days, it's no longer a sin. Okay, it's like the get-out-of-jail-free card. What's going to happen to people in the church? They're going to go get the get-out-of-jail-free card. And they're going to wreck their life and their witness. And Jesus says, repent, therefore. Friends, if the teachings here ever start leading people away from love and holiness and humility and goodness and generosity toward those in need, man, stand up. Call, call a, a flag on the play, throw a flag. In the early days of the vineyard movement, uh, Karen and I, Karen was on staff at a local church, vineyard church and I was an elder. And John Wimber, who was still alive then, came and did a meeting here in the Chicagoland area for vineyard leaders. And this, this will ring a bell with some of you and some of you will go, that's crazy, I never heard about that. But there was a huge movement Uh, in the evangelical church and charismatic church at at the time, uh, about territorial spirits. And the idea was, you discern what spirits, i.e. evil spirits, are connected to your region or city. Does anybody remember this? Okay, there's some nods. Okay, and then you pray against them and bring them down. And it was a huge movement at the time. So somebody raised their hand and said, you know, John, what do you think about it? John says, I won't allow that teaching on my, in my conferences. And he says, I get a lot of flack for that. He said, but here's, here's my thing. He says, people think, well, oh, well then you don't believe in spiritual warfare. He goes, of course I believe in spiritual warfare. But have you seen what the apostles do with, to, to fight the spiritual war in the book of Acts? They go plant a church. He goes, but today we have people who would rather go to a conference and sit there for three or four hours than actually go next door and serve their neighbor or tell them about Jesus. He said, I'm going to stick with the main and the plain. And he got a lot of flack for that. But in in those days, the vineyard was very healthy because of people like John who were standing up to bad teachings. All right. Well, those are things that we must all be careful about. So don't think, if you hear a crazy teaching, who am I? Think, where did that come from? Where does it lead? Does it lead to people living a life of crucifixion and resurrection? All right, let me move on. And by the way, I love you. You all are doing good, okay? (laughs) So there's so much to commend. I mean, and of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to in the book of Revelation, two, he does not correct. He encourages. He says, you're doing good. Now keep doing it. All right, but the third area that we must all watch out for if we're going to have a church worthy of the name is this natural tendency toward becoming blasé. And Jesus says often to every one of his followers to watch out for this. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt is no longer salty, what's it good for? Nothing. And the risen Christ often says to his churches things like this. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Or this, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you'd be one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is an analogy I really, really understand. I love hot coffee. (laughs) And I love iced coffee. And the one thing I can't stand is lukewarm coffee. When I pick up a cup and (laughs) not realizing it's got lukewarm coffee, I go, blah! And I dump out the cup. Friends, it is incumbent upon us that we we have to constantly say to ourselves and, and, and take measure, am, am I settling? Have I, have I begun to lost my first love? Like I used to get really excited about that, Jesus, you know, and now I'm kind of, uh, what, is, what is happening in my heart? Is it really true of me, like, like Paul said, I just want to know him. I want to know him in his sufferings. I want to know him in his resurrection life. I'm going to press on, and I'm going to keep pressing on till I get to heaven. Jesus is constantly speaking to his church. He's encouraging his church, and he's correcting the church. He's going to bring about a healthy church. As the Bible says, Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her to make her holy and clean. Washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church. Without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. When Karen and I were newly married, we went to New Hampshire and visited my grandpa and grandma. And grandma made a nice meal for us. And we were all sitting there around this dining room table. And... I had seen the table as a kid, but, you know, as a kid, you don't notice the dining table. But now I was older, and I I looked at it, and I thought, this is an amazing table. It's obviously an antique table, but it's better than new. Like, look at the wood grain in this. It's magnificent. It was glistening under the dining room light. And I said, Grandpa, tell me about this table, because it's really, it's beautiful. And he said, oh. He said, well, when we moved in here, I found that. Stuffed in the back of the barn. It was all covered over with junk. And when I pulled off the junk, I discovered people had painted it. And under the paint, you could tell there were lots of divots and gouges from rough wear over the years. But I saw something in that table. So he says, you know, the first thing I did was I stripped off the paint. That was hard work. And then... Once the paint was off, I started smoothing it out. So first I started with rough sandpaper. And then I went to like a a finer grade of sandpaper, regular sandpaper. And then I kept going like that time after time after time until the sandpaper was so fine you could hardly feel that it was rough. But it just brought it up really nice and smooth. And then I, I rubbed on stain and rubbed it off. And then I rubbed on the stain and did it again. And I did it again. And then I knew this table was gonna have a lot of hot dishes set on it. So he said, I put on a thin coat of polyurethane. And then I did it again. And then I did it again. He said, I spent that whole winter out in the barn. And now here it was, I rubbed my hand across the table and it was smooth as like a pool table. And the grain was so beautiful, it rippled like waves of wheat. And most people seeing a table like that would have called (laughs) 1-800-GOT-JUNK. But my grandpa knew, my family's going to sit around this table. And so he put his sweat and his hard work and a winter, a New England winter, into that table. The church that you and I see now is often scarred. It's covered up. It's gouged but there's an older, wiser person who sees something in it. Amen.